if you buy something like that, it's not just the cost of it, but it's the opportunity cost of what that money going out and working for you uh, could have done for you. And man, those things are so expensive uh, when, you, when you factor it in that way. Hey, it's JP. Hi, it's Excel. And you're listening to Terry Shower on the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. I'm here today with Jim Manning, who is hailing from St. Louis, Missouri. Um, Jim is, uh, yeah, hey, Jim, <laughs> um, is a, a founder of two funds, three real estate companies, three funds, two real estate companies. Maybe I'm not getting that right. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's uh, it's two real estate funds and three companies. Yeah, <laughs> I think you had it right the first time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I also just discovered fellow podcasters, so we're going to have lots of interesting stuff to talk about today. Usually, I just start out by uh, letting our audience get to know you a little bit. So, why don't you tell me about the journey through life and through business that has led you to be on the show with me today? So, yeah, absolutely. So, I uh, the I graduated school. And the first job that I had was uh, was for a self-made billionaire, and I was just barcoding wine. Uh, it took me two weeks to to take a a bottle out of his collection, put a sticker on it, and put it back in. So that's how much wine this guy had. You know, at one point I had a hundred thousand dollars of wine in my hand. So that's kind of the, the level of wealth this guy had, and and um, it was quite the experience because the first week that I worked for him. I was idolizing this guy. I thought, wow, this guy's like, I really want to be this guy when I grow up. You know, his his girlfriend's like incredibly beautiful. And and this guy's like in his 60s and he's wider than he is tall. And here he's dating this gorgeous girl half his age. And he invite he invite he even invited me to uh, his dinner with his family. And I get to dinner with his family. And within a couple of minutes, I realize that I'm there because his wife and his daughters hate him. And as the onion peels back and I get to know this individual better, I realize that, man, this guy may be a billionaire and he's also more miserable than, uh, than my parents, um, than my parents are. And my parents are from a middle, you know, I was proudly raised middle-class, uh, in the, you know, in the, the Midwest of America and St. Louis here. So, um, so that was a really eye-opening experience to me to see someone that achieved the pinnacle of business success. And yet at the same time was, living a very hollow, shallow, uh, empty life. Uh, so that was really the spark of it. Like, well, it would be really cool to do something uh, that I could achieve great uh, financial success. But at the same time, I, I want to measure my success by what I had to give up to get it. And at the same time, I needed to do it in a way that I, I don't give up my family. I don't give up my relationships. And so I started studying a bunch of different items and, and fell in love with the concept of real estate investing of um, buying a house, you know, improving it and literally improving that little piece of the world and making a home for a family. And so I kind of fell in love with that uh, from a feel-good standpoint. And then obviously you can make a lot of money if you're really good at real estate investing. So I like that end of it too. So you can call me a altruist that also likes to to make money at the same time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Great, great intro. So you know, we had a little conversation off camera um, and, you know, you, you said you've been at this for 15 years, which yeah. is, uh, you know, enough time to see different economic cycles, enough time to, I assume, have your business model go through a number of different iterations. Like, take me through that journey. Um, you know, you mentioned at the beginning you started out with flipping and then eventually that turned into something else. So just take me through that and what made you 
evolve your business model at each turn of the of the road, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question, Terry. I appreciate it. So uh, so we started out flipping properties and doing short sales. We would buy a property that was in a short sale and then we'd fix it up and then resell it. And um, we were able to do uh, one at a time to start. And then we started doing two at a time. And uh, then we started looking at our financials and like, okay, the P&L, like we, we made some good money here, but uh, in order for us to make more money, we're going to have to do more deals. And so in order to do more deals, we have to figure out a way on how to pay for the more deals is like we were um, making some money and then reinvesting it into the next project at the time. So then that's when we figured out, well, we can bring in some passive, uh, some uh, private individuals. They can act as a private investor for us or a, a passive investor for us. We can act as an active investor, do all of the work and they can, uh, they can pay for it. And uh, then we, we figure out a way to split the profits. And uh, so we started out doing that. And, and what was game changing for us was uh, the amount of deals we could do was now not limited to the amount of money that we had, was only limited to the amount of money that we could raise from other people. So, you know, this was, you know, I just explained like the first four years of our business, right? And then, um, uh, so then it took us about four years and we, we started raising more capital and we started really scaling. And uh, we had a 10-year run where we did over 100 flips in a year. And uh, in our heyday, like the, the most amount of flips that we had going at any one time, uh, we actually scaled up to about 120 houses. And uh, if that sounds like a lot, it was. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. let me, so let me, I want to, I want to understand. So you're talking about like the limiting factor being capital raising, but like, you know, I'm an operations person. I run a property management company and I'm thinking, man, if I had 120 construction projects on the go at the same time, like, I don't know how I would handle that. So how did you scale your operations side of things? Because that seems like it would have been really challenging as well. Yeah, it was not, uh, it was not easy. We had three full-time construction managers and those construction managers uh, had a third of the projects and then, uh, but they weren't actually operating as the general contractors. We had third-party general contractors that were ultimately running from job to job to job because we had enough volume to, to keep a, a lot of crews busy at that point. And uh, that, yeah, that's how we, that's how we set it up and, and how we were, we were able to do it and make, you know, and make money. You know, we were, we were able to, to grow and make money. And uh, the interesting thing about it, and one of the lessons that we learned was more deals doesn't always equate to more money. Uh, the year that there was a year that we bought an additional 100 house pack, and we did an extra 100 deals from the year prior. So we made this huge, massive leap forward on the amount of deals that we did. Uh, but the interesting part was because we took such a big leap forward on deal volume, uh, we ended up netting less money at the end of the day uh, because the expenses and the control over the properties and running a, a, a lean project got away from us a little bit uh, because we weren't operationally equipped to be able to handle that big of an influx on deals. So, uh, so that was an interesting an interesting lesson. And, and along the way, like, so, so that was really our income. Our income was from the, the, the flips that we were doing, right? Uh, just the same way, like if someone's a doctor or, or an attorney or a, a different small business, or you have income coming in too, right? But the neat thing was that income gave us enough to be able to reinvest into uh, real estate and, and into rental properties. And that was really ultimately how we uh, we're building our net worth and, and and have gotten it to where it was. It was because we didn't just flip properties to create more and more income. 
uh, we held on to some along the way as well. Mm -hmm. So just to like, um, you know, uh, close the loop on that, like, so your business model started with like basically flipping houses, which is kind of, it's, it's real estate, but it's active real estate income because you got to, it's like a real estate broker. You always got to do another deal, another deal, another deal to keep eating. You stop the deal flow, the money dries up. And so I'm hearing that you then reinvested some of that money into rental properties. And then I'm assuming that was the next kind of iteration of your business. That's right. Uh, so we were holding on to rental properties along the way. And because I've been doing this so long, some of our flips were now uh, getting resold five years later. Uh, you know, So if we sold a property for 200, then a homeowner might have sold it for 250 or 260. And then I'm looking at the math. I'm like, well, we made $30,000 on this deal. This homeowner who didn't, didn't do any of the work, didn't take any of the risk on is making another $30,000, $40,000 on it. We have this deal machine going, but on the back end, we are leaving so much money on the table by not just holding on to these investments over the long term. So, uh, so then we started, uh, uh, you know, this is back in 2018. I don't know the, know the exact deal, <laughs> or the, I'm sorry, the exact year. I think it goes around 2018. We started getting a lot more serious about, okay, how do we shift our entire business model into something that acquires and holds on to its wealth uh, as much more of our primary focus rather than do all these deals for this income and then by happenstance buy another five or 10 rentals that year. Okay. And so then I'm assuming you ran that for a little while. And then what did you see was the limitation of that that um, led you to want to do more passive and have a more like passive pitch now? So what happened? Yeah. So it was interesting is, is, is within we, you know, in hindsight, like I, I should have probably seen this writing on the wall right away, hey, uh, because I had already encountered this problem on the flips, right? Like we started out doing flips like on our own dime and then, uh, then we brought in people to scale it. Well, our team was already able to do a lot of deals. And as we started holding on to the deals, it became really apparent uh, that we're going to be restricted by the amount of money that we can reinvest into the company on our own. Uh, so it became very apparent that, okay, if we want to continue to grow this, uh, we're going to have to bring on other partners. And so then a decision had to be made, okay, do we want to open up a fund structure to to allow this to happen and, and open up the opportunity or not? And this was, there was a lot of internal thought process. This was a several month uh, decision that we, we really took our time on uh, because part of like, um, opening up a fund, I mean, it took us 18 months to like study it the right way, get the right attorneys, like, you know, set it all up. And it was a big left to put it together. And so on one hand, we already own my business partner and I, my co-founder, we already own enough real estate, um, to be able to, that we could just reposition slightly. And, and as you know, I'll be 40 in a couple of months and to be able to retire. So on one end, it's like, okay, we're already good. We've already won the game. Like we can continue to grow for growth's sake, but that's not always the best thing either, right? You know, so then we were trying to decide, okay, do we want to grow this or not? And then um, uh, I had an individual that I'm, I'm close friends with. Uh, I, I sat down with him. We're having a great conversation. And then he opened up to me and he said, hey, I'm in my 70s right now and I'm afraid of running out of money before I die. And that really hit me like a ton of bricks because like I, I really care about this person. And I was like, like, I don't understand. Tell me more. Like, you're a self-made millionaire. I already know this about you. Why would you be worried about running out of money before you die? And well, he said, well, I'm dealing, I'm on fixed income because I'm in my 70s. Uh, the stock market's gone down here recently. So I don't know how far lower, how much lower it's going to get or if it's going to stabilize and go back up. I'm not sure. 
uh, inflation's going through the roof. And because I'm in my 70s, I'm now forced to take money out of my retirement account. So, and then I looked at myself, I'm like, well, real estate, if you own $2 million of real estate, and let's say the government makes you take out $10,000 that year, uh, or whatever it is, right? And you have $10,000 of passive income coming in, well, you still own $2 million of real estate. So that is really like the, the, the amazing thing that with real estate. So then, you know, I sat down and I, 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 I thought about it some more and I, and I was like, okay, well, there's got to be more people like my friend in this situation. Uh, we already have the team in place and single family real, real estate, which is what we specialize on. The United States is, is in a housing crisis where 5 million houses underbuilt. So it's the perfect storm to go at and be aggressive and buy and hold on to as much as we can. Uh, we have some people that really have this need uh, that don't necessarily have the skill set or the time to do it on their own. Hard as of a conversation as it was because of the empathy that I have for my friend, uh, it also lit me up at the same time. Because it was like, okay, like, like I have a new purpose now. I can really, I can really try and help some people out and, and help people with not only uh, with time and treasure and help people live a, a retirement uh, uh, with financial freedom. So, uh, so, so then we decided to go ahead and, and, and take the plunge and, and, uh, and take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to, you know, underline a little bit of the difference that there, I, I, what I think is a difference between the way things function in the U.S. and the way things function in Canada. Mm-hmm. So for us, starting a fund is a massive undertaking. Like you're talking about, you know, $100,000 of startup costs in terms of having the thing you know, vetted by the government and making sure that you're not going to be swindling and taking investors' money. Is it as difficult in the U.S. or is that an easier process? Uh, no, I mean, it's it took us about 18 months to go through the legal process and, and square it all away and and uh, file with the SEC, the SEC's who regulates it. And, um, uh, you know, we interviewed multiple attorneys, got recommendations from multiple people. And no, I mean, it you know, like, like when I said I thought about it for a while, it was because I knew, so I thought it was going to, to be a lot of work to put together. And I was like, well, we're already good. Do I really want to even deal with this? And, you know, then I had that conversation with my friend and I was like, okay, uh, I will, I would feel good about that, uh, about leaving a legacy like that for people. And obviously I'm winning at the same time for us to, to be able to grow to the next level too. So it's, you know, it's, I guess it's that theme of altruism and opportunity at the same time, right? Uh, so then we decided to take the plunge. Uh, uh, this was about 18 months to two years ago We uh, when we really started uh, researching it and, and putting this thing together. Enjoying the episode so far? Have you really been listening to the episode or has your monkey mind been taking you off in one direction or another? Our mental habits can be our biggest assets or our biggest liabilities as we pursue certain goals. For me, the biggest performance gains have always come from training my mind. In my book, Mindful Landlord, I talk about how you can train your mind and how you can apply some of these strategies to your journey in the real estate field. The book is available on Amazon and also on its website, mindfullandlord.com. Now I'll stop evangelizing for the power of mental training and let you get back to the show. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's that's a really kind of a, you know, um, interesting process on the life in the life of, of the real estate investor, maybe in the life of anybody who's doing something is like, let's say we get into the real estate game because we hear, we, we all read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and we all read that like, okay, maybe I'm going to be able to retire before I could normally retire. Or maybe like with, you know, my passive income, I'm going to be able to have a better quality of life, right? And so we go through this phase where we're kind of starting things up. And then you get to a point where you're like, no, like I've won the game now. 
you know, and then but the thing is, you don't win the game and it's game over. You get to that point. You're like, OK, well, like now what is this going to be about? Is it going to be about, you know, like like some kind of an event that happens for you where you realize like, no, creating this kind of wealth journey that you went on for other people or coaching or, you know, some other thing that's going to make it meaningful beyond just financially winning the part of the game that you set out to win. So I think that's yeah, that, that process out nicely. That's absolutely right. And, it, you know, it's kind of like running like a marathon for financial freedom and like, and like to be, have that retirement of your dreams, right? And it's a grind. And each year it's like, okay, I'm still running the race. I'm still running. I'm still running. And then, you know, like, like when I was going through it, it was like, okay, this is hard. This is a chore. Like, oh, this sucks. And then now that like I'm at a place where I could stop running and exit the race, I'm choosing to stay in the race and I'm on fire. I'm more invigorated. I'm more into it than I ever have been. So it's been interesting. Like, uh, and I know a lot of other people have kind of walked yeah. along this path as well, but uh, it's been uh, uh, it's been really neat seeing that. Like, hey, I'm I'm doing this because I I'm I'm in the race because I choose to be in the race yeah. now, and yeah. and they're just trying to have fun with it. Yeah, behind the mountain, there's always another mountain. But uh, okay, so we also had a little bit of a conversation uh, off camera before about, uh, you know, let's say a typical deal for you. Um, and I think that's something where, you know, our audience can really visualize a little bit more about what exactly you do. So can you tell me really quickly about like a, you know, what a deal you've uh, done recently or the typical kind of thing you, you get into? Absolutely. So, um, so the philosophy that we like to do now uh, is we're much more conservative as, as we've gotten older. So being that I'm almost 40, I, you know, people listening in can't see how little hair I have on top of my head now. And I was uh, in my early twenties when I started this, you know, and, uh, then doing the flips was a lot of risk. There's a lot of upside and there's a lot of risk if things don't, aren't executed perfectly. Uh, and if you do everything in your, your, that's in your control and a market shift happens, like, you know, there can be issues there too. Right. So everything that we've gravitated towards is this very predictable quality returns. And like uh, the light bulb went off on my, in my head the other day as far as like why this is so important. If I have $100 and I lose 50% of it, I end up having $50, right? Well, it actually takes for me to get back to break even in $100, I have to have a 100% return on that $50 just to get back to break even. So if I lose money, it only has to go down 50%. But to get back to break even, it has to, the returns have to double just to get back to break even. So if we have strategies that are geared around, okay, how do we lower our risk profile? And we get very certain returns uh, when it comes to setting ourselves up for a retirement. Uh, that's really, you know, the last five, six plus years, that's been our main, our main predictable focus. And the lowest risk profile that I've ever been able to find is, um, is a strategy called private lending. And what private lending does is, is you find a real estate investor and you loan them money. And if the, if the property makes $100,000 or if it breaks even, you, it's a loan, just like the way a lender lends a homeowner money. And you agree upon what the interest rate is, and that's, uh, that's how you get paid back. So, uh, so that's one of my favorite strategies and, and how we run it is, is we'll, we'll not lend more than 70% of what the value is after the repairs. And, you know, we've done this on over $250 million of properties now. And, uh, so that's the first debt strategy that we have, the lending strategy. And then the second strategy that we really like is, is called lease purchases. Have you ever heard of that Terry before? I, no. 
So uh, how a lease purchase works is that uh, the landlord gets put in the position of the bank, of the lender, and the tenant gets in, put into position as the homeowner, okay? So if you're a homeowner on a property and your toilet leaks, you call a plumber. You don't call uh, Chase Mortgage if Chase Mortgage was who had your note, right? And it works the exact same way. Uh, and also if you're a homeowner, uh, and you buy a property, you need 3, 5, 10, 20% down before you can move into the property, right? Uh, that's part of the closing process. Well, the lease purchase deals work in the same fashion and, and, and in the same way. Um, so, so that's how we do our, uh, our rental properties and how we actually lower our risk profile as well uh, by acting as the lender on, on the deals that we, that we own. So is that rent to own? It's, uh, there's nuances and differences, but rent to own lease purchase, uh, some people will use them as, uh, synom uh, as synonyms or, or entertain interchangeably. Apparently I, I can't talk right now, but, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, there's a little bit of nuances, a little bit of differences though to it. What's the difference? Uh, so the rent to own, uh, if you have like a thousand bucks per month, uh, it's your payment. It just goes in as rent. And uh, at some point, uh, you're hoping that you'll be able to uh, pay for the house, uh, but you're not necessarily getting any principal pay down or reduction or anything like that. And our lease purchase model, it's, it's set up where, okay, the payment's a thousand bucks. Well, you get a hundred dollars of principal reduction this month or whatever the amortization schedule says. And we treat it uh, much more as a, uh, as a homeowner, as a homeowner structure. Okay. So it's basically just that yeah, I guess we kind of tend to, at least like uh, rent to own is not the most common strategy in Canada because our tenancy laws are a little bit complicated. But so we just lump them all together. But I guess what rent to own is would be that one day you have a chance to purchase the property, but essentially till that day you're still a tenant. Whereas the lease purchase is like, let's say instead of being a thousand bucks, your uh, payment will be eleven hundred and a hundred is going to you're putting it down on principal every month. Is that correct? Yeah. And everything's like negotiable on like there's different structures uh that you can that you can do like um within your strategy the interesting thing with it is is on like the lease purchase deals like a lot of times you'll see like okay well give me ten thousand dollar deposit down as your money down and you have three years to uh be able to get a traditional loan and cash me out of this deal if you don't do that we're going to kick you out on the streets and we're going to go and find somebody else to give us $10,000 at rinse and repeat. So there's a lot of real estate investors that will do that. And if that's the strategy that they do, I, I don't have a problem with that if uh, it's not done in a predatorial way. And there are some people that will have $10,000 plus to put down on a house uh, that literally have zero, like a close to 0% chance of getting everything in order so that they'll be able to purchase and buy you out of the deal in three years. Um, if that's the case, if they literally don't have a chance, uh, that, um, you know, that can be a little bit on the predatorial side and can give this strategy a little bit of a bad rap. Uh, well, how we do it is we'll actually be their bank and, and owner finance the deal for, for up to 40 years for them so that they don't ever have to get a traditional loan or anything like that. And, and one of our core values is customer first. And, um, uh, you know, we believe in taking care of our community and, and our people in it. And, uh, and that's, you know, one of the little, the, the little details or the, the little ways that make a big difference in, in how we run things. So, so it, you know, it means a lot to us that, that uh, we're, we're taking care of people and, and doing things the, the right way. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, 
So I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you, um, you know, one of my pet peeves, and, and then this ends up coming up pretty much in every episode of the show is, you know, in real estate, I think there's this real tendency um, to refer to the Instagram feed. And, you know, it's all about the shiny objects. And I think what gets lost a lot of the time when, when you know, people in the game for a while try to project success is we don't talk about the lifestyle hits and the like less glamorous things that we did to get where we are. So I want to turn you the question and ask you, you know, like, what did those sacrifices look like for you? Um, at what point in your life did you, you know, make concessions in the name of one day having the success that you wanted? Uh, that's a really deep insight. I really appreciate that. It, um, uh, you know, what's funny is, is like you get into the comparison game and it's just like, uh, and you see how like, like even me, we started this with, oh, he owns five real estate companies or like, like when I was just starting out, I didn't own five real estate companies. I owned one real estate company for five years. And then we started and do, you know, then we did the next thing. Right. So like, well, this has been like a 15 plus year evolution. Amazon sold books for three years before it got into the next thing. So, you know, first and foremost, like master one thing first, like don't go after multiple things, you know, that, that's going to be, and then you can always add to it uh, after a core competency has been developed. Okay. But as far as some sacrifices go, uh, I have a really hard time buying things that are nice that um, other people don't have a problem with. So for example, I'm driving a, I still drive a 2009 Honda Accord that's hail damaged and dented all and beat all up. And, and my, I mean, it's so bad. My business partners are like, Jim, you gotta buy another, a nicer car, man. And I'm just like, well, no, like, like I like to take my money and buy more real estate and things that will make me money. So uh, I've like, you know, and in our beginning years, that was so critically important, uh, because, because just if you have a really good year and let's say you make a hundred or $200,000, if you turn around and buy a nice car and then you buy a, a nicer house and you probably should too early, well, like you're not winning the game. You're just breaking even at that point. So having a discipline to take excess cash flows and then invest into something else, uh, is absolutely critical and, and vital to becoming financially free. And um, uh, on my side of things, it's an ingrained habit and um, it's kind of like how I like to live my life. So, you know, this has been a, a year-long debate about my, my business partners trying to, to talk trash and make fun of my car and, <laughs> and everything like that. And uh, I still don't know. It's like, okay, maybe I could or should, but... Uh, it gets me from A to B. And, uh, you know, as I'm getting older, I realize that, yeah, nice things are a lot nicer. I have a buddy. I was just riding around in a fancy car and I was like, okay, this is pretty sweet, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, not, I identify myself as a, like an investor first, not a fancy guy thing first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's actually, it's actually really funny. I feel like that's like one of the questions I need to ask on the podcast, like upfront. Okay. What kind of car do you drive? Cause You'd be surprised, like the number of investors who come on the show and who will say exactly what you say, which is that like, you know, those those fancy things that you're buying, like the shiny objects are taking capital away that you could ultimately use to reinvest in your business or reinvest to do something else. And that that then once you see that, that becomes the choice, right? Is like, do I want this this trinket or do I want something that's going to go in and make a net difference in terms of my cash flow later with, with which then maybe I can do something else. So I think yeah, that-, that that's right. And, and once you see things like, like it's hard to unsee once you really understand what compounding returns can do. So like, 
$50,000, oh, I mean, I guess 50000 is not even that nice of a car nowadays, but that $100,000 car, what that money, even at like, even at an 8% return compounded over 30 years, like, like we're talking hundreds and thousands and millions of dollars that that car actually cost you. So like, like if you buy something like that, it's not just the cost of it, but it's the opportunity cost of what that money going out and working for you uh, could have done for you. And man, those things are so expensive uh, when you when you factor it in that way. Oh, and you know what? I'm going to splice that. That's going to be like the thing we use for this episode because that was just like really very nicely encapsulated. Thank you. One last question because we're kind of nearing wrap up time. Um, what do you think we should be talking about in the industry that we're not talking about? Um, you know, like I, I think us in, in real estate investors, brokers, the discourse, public discourse in the field is heavily around certain issues. What issue should be getting more airtime that isn't getting airtime? Uh, so, oh man, what a loaded question. Uh, I'm going to go pragmatic here. Not some of the NARs going through a bunch of stuff right now and all that. Um, so when I got my start was in, uh, I started really studying real estate in 2006 and that was before the market kind of shifted and we had, uh, uh, the, the great recession, so to speak. And the name of the game at that point, the whole market shifted to something called short sales. And uh, for those of us that have been around, it's like, oh yeah, short sale. We know what that is. You fast forward 15 years and the people I've gotten in in the last five years might be like, short sale, what are you talking about? I don't even understand or know what that is. Okay. So we had a whole market shift. And uh, one of the lessons I learned was that there's money to be had in every market. You just have to play around where the market has shifted to. So back in the 1970s and the 1980s, uh, that was the last time interest rates went up. And people uh, didn't just wait 20 years to move. They got really creative and they figured out how they could move. So now that interest rates have gone up from 3% or whatever they were at the low, two and, two and some change, uh, to you know in the sevens and then the eights, just depending on what type of loan product you're getting, um, there's a lot of people right now. And I know in my market, there's 30% less sales than there was the year before. There's a lot of people saying, okay, well, I'm just going to wait on the sidelines until interest rates go back down. Well, interest rates, last time they went up, it lasted 20 years, guys. So if you can wait, if you want to wait 20 years, go, go ahead. But if you need to move, you need to move. And uh, what I think us investors and what I think us uh, as realtors, uh, what we're doing is that we're doing the, uh, the clients a disservice if we don't start to talk about the history behind things. So Back in the 70s and 80s, owner financing started popping up and the homeowner ended up acting as the bank and allowing the new purchaser to come in and offer them a lower interest rate than, the, than what the going rate was. The homeowner won because the homeowner was able to turn their asset into some passive income and the buyer won because the buyer was able to get a purchase price on a home for less of an interest rate. Uh, so the whole market has shifted. We're in an owner finance market now. And it's just, we're trying to figure that out now as professionals. And most of us aren't really sure what it was because, you know, it was 50 years ago when this happened last. So the, the realtors and the investors that dealt with this probably aren't actually in the industry anymore, right? So, uh, so then we go back to the history lesson of what short sales did for us. Realtors and investors ended up partnering together. There was a whole role that it was known as a short sale specialist. So the short sale specialist was typically an investor or a very investment-minded realtor, 
and they would work short sales and negotiate with the banks for the realtors. So the realtors could do their thing and the investor could do their thing and some of the negotiations that takes more of an investor skill set. So that partnership was formed and the people that worked together made a tremendous amount of wealth during that market. So now we have the opportunity as an industry to do the same thing. Investors can come in with uh, creative financing and owner financing solutions and help that end of the things. And realtors can, can sniff out that, hey, they're part of the 30% of the market that wants to move that thinks they can't. Well, we need to educate and, and tell them, hey, no, you can move now. Uh, let me bring in an, my investor partner, my owner financing specialist, and let me help you with that. Uh, so yeah, so that's really on a pragmatic scale. Like I would love to see, um, I'd love to see people um, start to understand that and, and start to implement that because uh, we're going to be able to help more and more people out. Uh, and I have a, actually, I have a, um, a passive income course on the Passive Wealth Show uh, that I go into the owner uh, turning your uh, turning a house sale into passive income, and I, I, I hit on this a little bit. Um, if, if anyone's interested in, in learning more about it, it's it's hundred uh, percent free. You know, it's not going to cost you any money, anything like that. Uh, but it can give you a little bit more details on the subject. So yeah, no, I think that's a really a great point, and I think I've also been in the industry for like you know twenty plus years, and. Um, in that time, we've seen like our more our um, economic cycles and our housing cycles in Canada are not quite following the U.S. Uh, we're obviously like aware of what goes on there, but here too there have been various different market cycles. And like when you're looking at people who have that two, three, four year time horizon, and then you have people who've been in the industry for 20 years, like we've seen more, but we haven't seen everything. And I think you're absolutely right that you know there are now the people who are you know 70 plus who went through the last cycle when interest rates were really high and. And maybe what we need to do is listen a little bit more to the strategies that functioned back then and try to reanimate them today because that's the reality of what's going on. So I think I think that's a really good point. Jim, we're out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our audience today. We're definitely going to drop um, the in the show notes the link to your uh, course. If, if you get into some of that stuff, I think it's going to be super interesting. Where can people um, catch up with you if they want to learn more about what you do? Yeah, so uh, PassiveWealthShow.com. Uh, is a, a good place to go. And I even have a, uh, a Calendly link that you can get access to uh, to my schedule if you want to hop on a call. Um, I'm really I'm in a place right now, guys, where I'm having fun. I'm looking to help people out. And uh, so if you go there, I think it's, uh, if you click on like the invest button, there's like a, a thing that will take you to my Cal Calendly link. Uh, and then we also have another free course too available on um, uh, investing in your first uh, real estate fund. Uh, available to that um, uh, for people that are, are wanting to, to learn more about being a passive investor and whether it is right for them or, or, or as well. So uh, just trying to provide value and help people out and and, and hopefully I provide value for, for you guys uh, today. And uh, I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on, Terry. Yes. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for listening to the Real Estate Investors Club podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating. Leave a comment, subscribe, and share. You can find Terry at terryshower.com. Her book, Mindful Landlord, is available on Amazon. You can also follow her on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. JP is the president of the Real Estate Investors Club. You can learn more about the club's networking and educational activities on Facebook by searching for Real Estate Investors Club. Look to the show notes to find information on our guests and links to material mentioned in the episode.